0: Look with me at our passage for today, and we will see uh, what God has to show us. We're continuing in Mark, of course, chapter 12 and verse 28, reading through the end of chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they are all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for drawing us all here together. Uh, it is by your own grace and mercy and great love that we have found ourselves in this place, come to worship you, come to hear from you. I ask that you would help my words to be in line with what you would have us all to hear, that all else would fall away. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for being present among us, for moving in us, for opening up our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. We ask now that that would happen, and that Jesus, our King, would receive all the glory for it. In his name we pray, amen. Um, it, it seems to me in, in looking at uh, where we're at in Mark, where we've been, that this is as good a time as any, to uh, sort of look at where the gospel has taken us thus far. Um, We won't look really far ahead, uh, but we'll look at at kind of where Mark has come. And if you remember, especially from, I guess it was late last winter or early spring, uh, there was a lot of talk about kind of the speed, the pace at which uh, the gospel of Mark moves. Sometimes seems a little hasty, uh, definitely doesn't, provide as many details as the other Gospels, but he also doesn't leave out any of the foundational pieces that we need. Uh, in the first verse, uh, he says, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so you and I, as the readers, and everybody who read this before us and all the people who will read it after us, uh, have this distinct benefit of, of knowing pretty clearly what this book is gonna be about. Um, But before we get even out of the first chapter, we see already that the people that were there, that were near Jesus, uh, were struggling with the question, who is Jesus? Struggling with his authority, because they perceived that he did teach with authority. Struggling with his identity. Who is this guy? Because some of these people are are people from his hometown, right? They're people that uh, have known him his whole earthly life. And maybe they're thinking, this guy's weird. Um, we see Herod and others who are, are interested in who Jesus is, who want to know who he is. Uh, we see even his disciples that he has called, struggling back and forth with who Jesus is. Uh, maybe he's the Messiah. He starts to seem like the Messiah, but they certainly don't get the full implications of who he is and what it is that he's doing. So this primary question is one of the primary questions and themes that we see throughout Mark is the question of who is Jesus. Uh, and this question really becomes uh, starts to come to a head in re- some of the recent chapters that we've covered as Jesus moves out of his ministry uh, in kind of the broader Galilee area and he goes into Jerusalem right he goes into the most important city in in Judaism and in Israel he not only goes into the the, the most important city with uh, with intentions of, of teaching uh, but he goes in and is, is praised and worshiped by the people as he goes in who also seem to start considering that he m- may be the Messiah um, he moves into the temple very quickly, not just in Jerusalem, but in the last couple chapters again, we've seen that he has moved his, uh, his activity into the temple, his teaching into the temple. And what we'll see is that as Jesus teaches and he increasingly asserts his authority, he will also be revealing in some ways more about his identity, more of the answer of who is Jesus. So as he displays his authority, he will also uh, reveal his identity. Uh, and the powers that be, particularly in the temple, uh, they don't like this, do they? He's been dealing with uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, and we've seen uh, them called the Herodians and scribes and elders. They're all sort of different people, but they're all the, the power players in Judaism, in the temple, and indeed in, in all of um, Jerusalem and Israel. And mostly what we've seen are unfriendly encounters, right? Mark has even told us they're like trying to trap him. They're uh, they're wondering who he is, uh, but they really don't like him. And maybe they don't actually care a whole lot who he is, uh, because what they feel perhaps the most is they feel that he is a threat to their own Authority. Again, we've seen that since the very beginning of Mark, when it says that the people perceived that he was, in fact, teaching with authority. So this is where we have, have recently seen Jesus. He is interacting with the people who uh, put themselves out there and view themselves as the agents of God, as the human connections with God. And so here, uh, at the beginning of our passage, we see the last of of this sort of Mark's um, stories about Jesus' interactions with leader, with one of the leaders. This one's a little bit different, uh, though, as most uh, most people view this as being a friendlier encounter, slightly friendlier. Um, some people will think that it uh, maybe uh, is uh, is. A, there's something else at work there. Maybe it's not as friendly as it seems. Um, but we do see that the scribe is is described as approaching Jesus, right? That he, he came and he heard, uh, he saw, and he asked a question. Um, and what he asked Jesus is a common question at the time for a lot of the leaders uh, of the Jews, uh, for a lot of the rabbis, is... Uh, is what, what is the greatest commandment? Or how would you summarize uh, the law of God? So he's looking for uh, maybe a singular answer. He's kind of maybe throwing out there this idea that, hey, there seems to be a lot of stuff that we're supposed to do to be in right relationship with God. Could you help us make sense of that? Could you boil it down a little bit? That might be part of what he's asking. But Jesus doesn't give him a singular answer, or it doesn't appear that he gives him a singular answer. Rather, he gives him not the greatest commandment, he gives him what he says are the two greatest commandments. We have the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6, and then we have the the directive to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a bit more obscure and is found uh, primarily in Leviticus 19. what he says is he says there's no commandment greater than these this is his answer to to the scribe's question so what he does is he he unifies jesus is unifying the love of god the love for god with love for neighbor so we might ask ourselves i mean that that sounds sort of obvious to to most christians most church people right well of course we have to love god and love neighbor but but this is a pretty different answer than they have ever received before. So we want to look really quickly at why Jesus does that and what he means by it. Uh, One commentator says that the love of God comes prior to love of neighbor and establishes it uh, as a real possibility. Um, Another way of saying that, or maybe even a little bit further, would be to say that the love for God requires love for others not that it, uh, it forces it upon you necessarily, but it cannot be divorced from love of neighbor. That's because when we love God, it is actually God's love that becomes the love that we have, the love that animates us, that flows through us, and that works in our relationships with other people. So what we see is that uh, when the source of a person's love uh, is not God. Uh, they can still love a person, right? We I, I work at Black Mountain Home for Children up the road. We don't believe that like only Christians can care about kids and take good care of kids. Uh, we don't believe that only Christians can love other people, right? But what we do think is that, that there is a unique, sometimes strange quality, about God's love uh, that will not be present if he is not the source of our love for each other, right? So we hear the world talk a lot about love. It's not that it's not real love, uh, but perhaps it is lacking in some significant way. An example that came to mind for uh, for how to kind of think about how the love for God can impact uh, or requires our love for others was I was thinking uh, about many years ago um, when my wife and I were having a, a really hard time, and, and I can remember where I was at, I remember the day, I remember kind of the time of day, I remember where I was at, and I remember the year. Um, and I, I basically cried out to God and said, I, I really want things to be right between my wife and I, but I can't do that. I need, I need you to, to do something. And I didn't really even know what I was asking for in some sense. And yet I heard, not audibly, but I, I clearly heard God speak to me as clearly as I ever have in my life. And what he said is, you're not really right with me if you're not right with your wife. And, and of course, what he, he wasn't saying was, look, I'm only going to love you if you love your wife really, really well. That wasn't what he was saying. Um, rather, what he was saying is that if this is, if this is what you want, if you love me, my love is going to require that you love your wife well. That's one, one of the points about Jesus combining these commandments. Jesus, uh, he also names these, these qualities of being a human that kind of uh, come together, kind of coalesce, right? He, he names the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, when he says that it requires all of those things, um, what he's saying is that it's from the source of those things that our love must come it's not by the means so you see the difference the source and the means. So in other words uh, he's saying you can't muster up enough love or uh, heart or mind or strength you can't muster up enough of this stuff to love God. Uh, rather it is it is the fullness of those which is found in the love of God um, that enables us, to love him, so we can't muster up enough love for God. Uh, and the scribe says, "Yeah, Jesus, you're right. Those commandments are are greater, basically, than, than all of our best efforts. Be, better than the our best efforts to fulfill the law. And it is uh, probably not that he's just looking for attention; that he's looking to compliment Jesus." Uh, but maybe he has some deeper understanding of what it is that Jesus is actually saying. Maybe this scribe's heart is, is itself being drawn to Jesus, and he's perceiving that, uh, that Jesus is, is even suggesting that all of this work that's happening in the temple, all of the sacrifices and things, would be null and void if only God would enable his people to, in fact, love him and love one another rightly. And in his response to the scribe, Jesus again asserts his authority. He tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God, which is kind of a weird thing to say. Um, but it is Jesus' authority surpassing the scribe's authority, right? The scribe's authority was to interpret the Torah, basically, Um And Jesus' authority surpasses that, not only in having given an accurate interpretation of the Torah, but also then extending to this man the possibility that he might be very close to the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom is not found in the Torah or in the temple, but it is found in Christ himself. So he gives this pretty bold, authoritative, sort of weird, Response: The text tells us that no one really wanted to ask him any questions after that, which I'm sure he was fine with, kind of fed up with that a little bit maybe. And he pivots a little bit to addressing all the other people that are in the temple to the crowd. He shows his authority again in this way by asking a rhetorical question about uh, referencing Psalm 110. Uh, And part of what he does here is he points out the inconsistency in the people of Israel's belief about the Messiah. Um, This passage feels like a riddle, feels like we're supposed to figure something out. Uh, But again, you and I have the benefit of of greater context given in the Gospel of Mark. So we know what what is being said here. We know that it is David um, speaking, and he is saying that God uh, is talking to the Messiah. He's saying, the Lord, which you usually see in the Old Testament in all caps, is saying to my Lord, uh, Adonai is what it would be. Um, and so what the, people are, what the people are not understanding here, they, they got the characters down. They're kind of interpreting what's being said right uh, but what they're basically left with is, is they're deducing that the Messiah is a descendant of David, just like I'm a descendant of my dad uh, or somebody farther, much farther away. Um, and what they, what they fail to see, too, is that for David to call the Messiah Lord would mean that he has to be more than just David's Descendant, right? So that's not that's kind of should be kind of obvious to us. That's not how it works. I didn't grow up with my dad saying yes, sir and no, sir, to me. I grew up learning to say that to him. And so we we reference, use the reference, my Lord, when David uses that reference, he is clearly talking to someone who is greater than him. And so what they're missing is is yes, he is a descendant, the Messiah is a descendant of David but he must also be uh, an ascendant of David. He must also be someone who came before David. So what Jesus is, is pointing to here again is the key to understanding what his authority is. Remember we said that his authority, his identity, are closely linked to one another. <clears throat> he says, he's, he doesn't say this, but he's pointing to, Yes, the Messiah is the son of David, but he is also the son of God. And this is the answer that we continually see throughout Mark uh, as to the, the question of who is Jesus. The answer is he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. We see this, yes, in the first verse of Mark. We also see it in the first chapter when Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends and the Father's voice Says, This is my son. We see it in the transfiguration several chapters ago when again the voice of the father is saying, This is my son, listen to him. And even in chapter 11, right? So there are a bunch of times when Jesus' authority is questioned, he points back to his baptism and basically refuses to directly answer. Uh, answer the question about his authority, but he clearly points back to a time when they, if they were perceiving rightly, they would have understood that his authority is coming from God because he is, in fact, the son of God. I have no idea how that's sounding to you. It feels long, <laughs> I'll be honest. The, the question uh, of who is Jesus and the answer that he is the son of God probably sounds unsurprising to you. Uh, it is, does not seem revelatory in a church setting in particular. But, but what we tend to do is we tend to grow a little bit complacent with that, I think. We tend to, to grow at least accustomed to hearing those words uh, and do not let our hearts meditate enough on the truth of it and what it means for us. Because if we don't see Jesus as both the Messiah and the Son of God, then we can't rightly see God's love for us. We can't rightly love God, that first great commandment. And if we don't know God's love for us, if it is not the love that is animating us and flowing through us, then we will not Fulfill the second part of that commandment, either to love our neighbor. We'll be like the scribes that he describes here, who are looking out for themselves, not clearly loving their neighbors. And who have we seen Jesus expand this term of neighbor out to? He doesn't do it here, but in in Luke chapter 10, he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's asked, Who is my neighbor? We know, now given plenty of context and experience, he expands it to everybody, right? It's not just your fellow Jew. It's just not just your fellow Christian. It's not just the Gentiles. It's actually everyone all the time that are our neighbors. <clears throat> In a time when so many people dismiss and disbelieve and question the divinity of Jesus. Even people who would say that they are squarely in the church, uh, who who would not say, though, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, you and I are called not to question it, but to cling to it, to cling to it for dear life, because we cannot follow after Jesus without it. Because the call of Jesus to be a disciple is extremely difficult. Following Jesus and being made like him, as most, if not all of you know, is very, very hard. Loving people who are different than us. Loving people who have different political views or uh, people who are contentious in the public sphere. People who are counterfeit people who hurt us and injure us, even the people that are closest to us, is really, really hard to love other people. So we must cling to Jesus. It is difficult primarily, I think, to love other people because in most cases we know what they're after. We know what they're after because it's the same stuff that we're, at, we're after. It's some, some sort of self-fulfillment, it's some sort of uh, power or influence or reputation or money or whatever it might be that we know many other people are after because it's what we ourselves would be after. Loving our God, loving our neighbors is impossible if God does not show up and change things. If God does not show up and change our hearts, we will never be able to love one another rightly. Jesus as the Christ and the son of God makes it possible for us to see the love of God, to receive it and to give it away freely in return. The good news is that Jesus doesn't call us into this challenging, hard discipleship just to make us feel bad, just to make us suffer, to make our lives seem impossible, though that will often be the feeling. Rather, he does it to free us because in giving up all of the things that we might hold on to, we're giving up our lesser loves. We're making more space for his love to become the love that is what we give out to others. As we see here with a contrast between the scribes and the well-known story of the poor widow, it's a contrast in discipleship. The scribes, Jesus said, heap up condemnation on themselves uh, in pretending maybe even believing that their lifestyle, which he describes here, has something to do with the love of God and the love of neighbor. And Jesus points to the widow as the paragon of discipleship, not just because she's poor, but because of the cost that she herself bears. He doesn't say that the rich people didn't actually give a lot, But he does say that the widow gave more. He says that she gave everything she had, all she had to live on. Because discipleship, as we look at this contrast, is all about sacrifice. Not measured by how much you give, but measured by how much you hold on to for yourself. We see Jesus, both the Son and the Lord and the Maker of David, keeping nothing for himself, making these two greatest commandments possible for his disciples. And it is in Jesus alone as the Son of God that we see every barrier to love, broken down and torn down. Earlier, uh, not earlier this week, last week, I had a friend call me and we were talking about some things that had not been reconciled and their intent was not judgmental. I didn't get that sense at all. Um, But what... I recognized in that conversation in the times afterward was that there are a lot more people than I realize. There are a lot more people than I want to admit that I need to ask forgiveness of. Likewise, there are a lot of people that I need to give forgiveness to. And there are all kinds of reasons that we don't, Think about this, right? Time goes by, maybe years and decades. Maybe the the chief reason is because it doesn't feel very good and I don't really like the awkwardness or the vulnerable position that it puts me in to admit to someone else that I've been wrong. And not only am I wrong, but I actually need something from them in forgiveness. But just as Jesus sought to move his activity into the temple, to break down the barriers that would isolate different people, right? That would isolate the Gentiles or restrict them to a certain area, or the women and children, or the sick. Just as Jesus seeks to break down those barriers, he seeks to move into the temple of our hearts to break down the barriers to love of God love of a neighbor. And the final barrier, in some sense, that he breaks down is centered on forgiveness. It is in the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, both Messiah and Son of God, that we find forgiveness secured for us forever. And it is out of that that we find an overflow of love both for God and for our neighbor. You've heard it before, familiar lines from 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But we don't. We don't, do we? But what we can hang those failures on is that this working out of forgiveness and love that results in our love of God and our love of neighbor is not some one-time occurrence. It's not like God says to you, here is my love, take good care of it because that's all that you get. Rather, it is an eternal and apparent love that flows in us and through us that we are caught up in this stream of love for all of eternity secured for us by Jesus it is unending and unceasing the love that God gives to us whether we steward it well or not if you're here this week well you are here this week I see that you're here this week You also have people like this in your life, people that you need to ask forgiveness of, people that you need to give forgiveness to. And you don't need a moment, the truth is, to know who those people are. I don't need to give you a silent moment to close your eyes. You know who those people are. And yes, it's uncomfortable and yeah, it might be people that you don't even know anymore because it's been so long since you talked with them. Or it might be the person sitting next to you. It could be a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend or a co-worker. Again, it could be someone that you barely even know. These are all your neighbors. And to love your neighbors is to offer forgiveness to them, whether they ask for it or not. Sometimes it might actually be appropriate not to say it to them necessarily. That's not to let you off the hook. It is also to ask forgiveness. To ask forgiveness is a way of loving your neighbor. Today, Jesus, as the Son of God, as the Messiah come to set us free. He is himself the great love of God. He is the great temple of God. Can you see him? Do you hear him beckoning you into the temple, not so that you would be burdened by all the things that you have to do, but that so you could rest knowing that you are forgiven knowing that you are loved? Do you see him today? Do you hear who Jesus is? And will you respond to him in love? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have called us here. We are thankful that you have made a way for us to know your love, which seems so beyond our comprehension. Surely we could never attain to it, but you have embodied your love and your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for securing for us once and for all the great love of God, the forgiveness of God, and for moving into our lives in such a way to make this possible, that we might love you in return and that we might love all of those around us. I confess, we confess that we do not do this. We do not steward your love well, but we desire to. We ask that you would help us. I pray for the people in this room who may go out today or tomorrow or decades from now seeking to love their neighbor through offering or asking forgiveness. I ask that you would go before them to soften hearts, that you would go before them, spreading your kingdom, making your love known to many outside of this room. Help us to be faithful as you are faithful, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we hang all of our hopes on you.